Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Music, a channel on the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode. Our guest for this episode is Dr. Philip Auslander, author of In Concert, Performing Musical Persona, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2021. In the book, In Concert, Performing Musical Persona, Dr. Philip Auslander addresses not only the visual means by which musicians engage their audiences through costume and physical gesture, but also spectacular aspects of performance such as light shows. Although musicians do not usually enact fictional characters on stage, they nevertheless present themselves to audiences in ways specific to the performance situation. Auslander's term to denote the musician's presence before the audience is musical persona. While presence of said musical persona may be most obvious within rock and pop music, the book's analysis extends to classical music, jazz, blues, country, electronic music, laptop performance, and music made with experimental digital interfaces. So our guest today, Dr. Philip Auslander, is professor in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at the Georgia Institute of Technology. So welcome, Dr. Auslander. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to our talk. So before we dive into the you know content of the book itself, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I mean, my main uh, interest is performance. But for me, that means a number of different things. I think and talk and write and teach about performance in the context of theater, uh, the visual arts, that is performance art, music, uh, but also some other realms like law and uh, technology. Uh, I'm also a performer myself. Uh, I am an actor. Um, and so I sort of bring that experience of performance uh, to the work that I do. That's awesome. It sounds like you're, you know, you have a lot of interest in very versatile in that way. And I definitely see how that came through, you know, kind of over the breadth of this book, even, even though it's all about music, like just kind of the things you discussed from start to finish. So that's really interesting. Um, and a little bit more kind of about, you know, the background of all this, what was the process of working on this book like? Um, these chapters are based on earlier writings of yours, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, like a lot of academic writing, <laughs> the uh, chapters began life as conference papers or journal articles or you know, things of that sort. And But the, the interesting thing for me about the process of bringing it together is that I think of myself or I think of the work that I do as storytelling. Um, even though I'm not writing in a narrative form, to me, there is a narrative. In, and so what the, what the process of putting these materials together was about was, first of all, making sure that I had a story to tell, that, that all of this stuff that I've been working on over a period of really about 15 to 20 years uh, could be brought together in a way that would tell uh, a coherent story and then trying to figure out what the shape of that story would be. So I entertained the possibility of just doing it as a, a kind of chronological arrangement so that the story would be about the development of my ideas. But I didn't do that in the end. Um, in the end, I 
realize that the chapter, which is the longest chapter in the book, which is just called Musical Personae, was kind of the heart of the book that needed to be in the center. And so I was then trying to think about, okay, well, how do I lead up to that? And how do I lead away from that? Um, and so that became the, the narrative structure of the book. And once I had that in place, uh, then I, I, I worked on all the materials to sort of maximize the flow from one thing to another and really try to uh, make them all work well together. Yeah, that's interesting how you like had to experiment with it that way. And I think it worked um, really well, actually, in the way it ended up settling. It kind of did set up that chapter you're talking about, I thought, really well um, going from beginning to end in that way. And, you know, speaking of these kind of stories or story that you're telling here, who do you think might particularly engage with the story here? In other words, who might some target readers for your book be? Well, I mean, of course, it is an academic book published by an academic press. But, you know, I do think it potentially has a a much broader readership. And and certainly people that I've talked to about these ideas. I mean, the the idea of musical persona, once you kind of get talking to people about it, I mean, music fans of any kind, really, um, they they pick it up. I mean, they they understand what I'm talking about, whether or not they're keyed into, you know, sort of academic uh, discourse. So I do think uh, a lot of the concepts that I'm working with here, persona, musical genre is another thing that people get very worked up about and are very happy to talk about um, and get very excited about. So, yeah, I think potentially it has a very broad audience, really anyone who's interested in music uh, and particularly in the performance of music uh, and particularly in a sense in live performance, because the 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 the, the default uh, situation uh, under which music is being performed in this book is live concerts, which is one of the reasons it's called in concert. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, really anybody who's interested in music, read my book. Yeah. And that got me thinking kind of about, I guess, maybe what you see going on in this present moment. I mean, what do you see going on with concert making in the middle of a pandemic with, you know, how's how's musical persona and, you know, and, and things you've seen going on right now play out, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I don't I, I have actually been paying some attention to that. Um, and in, in some ways, I don't think it's necessarily that different with respect to persona. I mean, maybe the setting of the persona is different because we've been seeing so many instances of musicians performing from their homes. Um, and so maybe we get a sense of you know, kind of a more intimate view of that person. Uh, but to my mind, persona is heavily linked to genre. And so the persona has to be appropriate to the genre in which the person is performing. And that remains pretty much true, whether the person is performing on stage or, uh, or from their home. Uh, so in that sense, I, I, I think the idea of persona has remained pretty active and, and basically uh, the same uh, as what I was arguing about. But I will say that there, there have been a lot of interesting developments. And I think one of the developments that actually interests me the most uh, is not so much uh, live performances on the Internet, uh, is more the, the way in which existing recorded performances have been repurposed as quasi-live events um, on the Internet. Uh, and so I've been paying uh, a lot of attention uh, to, to those particular things uh, and also to situations in which people try to use um, the internet in ways that create conditions that are similar to live performance. So, for example, making it available only at specific times or 
you know, only for a specific period of time. So it has some of the ephemerality um, of live performance or in one case, promising that a recorded performance would be accessible only uh, at certain points and for a certain run and never again, um, making it even that much more ephemeral. And just like, in a sense, going to a live event, actually, the, 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 the people reneged on that promise, but the promise was made. So letting people down sounds like in some of these cases. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Like how that boundary is kind of getting blurred there. Like you're saying sort of with even that categorization of what concert means and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I was just curious about what you had seen, what's going on now. Um, but going back to the book for a minute, so starting, of course, with part one entitled Preliminaries, you know, you kind of state at one point that this set of chapters in part one asserts, quote, that in order to be fully understood, music must be seen as inextricable from performance and the musician's persona as the entity through which music is communicated to the listener, end quote. So how do you see that playing out, I guess, in these first few chapters of part one? Sure. So, I mean, the very first chapter is actually the pretty much the first thing that I wrote um, in this area. So that's sort of starting from that point. And so that was really fundamentally the argument that, first of all, that that was primarily in the context of popular music. Um, and so the argument was, first of all, that performances of popular music are worth looking at as performances and being analyzed um, as such. Um uh, but overall, the first part of the book is really devoted to kind of putting some basic ideas um, out on the table. So the second chapter focuses to a certain degree um, on gesture and the significance and importance of uh, the gestures that musicians make, not just the gestures that are involved in playing instruments or singing, but also the other, all the other expressions, physical expressions that musicians make. Um, and why those are uh, important uh, to the performance experience. Uh, and then after that, uh, the, the, the other two chapters in this section focus on uh, fairly specific aspects of performance, one of which is the, re the relationship between the visual and sonic uh, dimensions of performance. And, uh, and then the last chapter is about the relationship between musicians and their instruments. Um, and so, so I was just trying, uh, you know, again, as I was thinking about organizing this material in the first part of the book, I was just trying to put some of the basics on the table, some of the basic arguments and some of the basic relationships uh, as between the visual and the auditory musician and instrument, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And kind of too, I was thinking about kind of your place at these intersections discipline wise of performance and music, you know, how do these ideas that you kind of present here set yourself apart from, you know, other performance studies scholarship, for instance? Well, I'm, I'm happy to be able to say that this has changed since I started all this, but one of the main reasons <laughs> I got involved in this is because at the time, there was no performance studies scholarship engaging with musicians. And to me, this just seemed like an obvious and kind of massive gap. Um, and I could see no reason why uh, this was the case. I mean, musicians are self-evidently performers, so why not talk about them as such? And then when I started poking into it, I realized that, at least at that time, 
the same was kind of true from the other side, that especially traditional musicologists weren't particularly interested in performance either. So I thought, okay, well, here's, you know, here's something that needs to be done in a sense, something to, to address, something to talk about here, and, and a good opportunity to try to figure out a way of talking about it, uh, a way of, of talking about musicians as performers, not just as people who make certain kinds of sounds. Um, so that was kind of where it started from. Now, you know, I over the years, I've in various venues and contexts, I have advocated pretty loudly for um, people to take this kind of interest in musicians, um, and yeah, with some success, I think. And and I can say that at this point, there are probably uh, you know many more people who are looking at it from this kind of perspective than there were uh, when I started out. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely see myself uh, as trying to create um, a dialogue between those two areas, between performance studies and music or musicology, however you want to put it. Um, and to try also as to sort of define some terms in which that dialogue might take place. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of positioning myself, I think, as a kind of intermediary between the two fields uh, and hoping to get people on both sides talking to each other. Yeah, that was one of the things I was looking forward to reading this book was having this as kind of a model for those kind of discussions. And I think, you know, anyone, especially like you said, this opening section can really go to any of these four chapters and get that groundwork as a model for their own work too. Um, So I think it's definitely a useful tool. Um, in that section. But I was just thinking about that. Um, I think you had mentioned that at some point in the introduction or part one, something about that. Um, And then, of course, once we get the foundation, then we go on to part two, you know, the section entitled The Interactionist Turn, you know, you talk a lot about about Goffman's ideas and how those can be applied to musical performances. So what are some of those key Goffman ideas that you explore in part two? Well, the single most important one is the idea of self-presentation, which comes from Goffman's single most famous book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. And this came, my my use of Goffman um, came basically because as an actor, my default model of performance is always acting. Uh, But when I started thinking about musicians, uh, as you said in the introduction, normatively there are of course many exceptions but normatively when you're watching a musician on stage you're not watching the musician portraying a fictional character the way an actor does you're watching the musician presenting a version of themselves the 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 version of themselves that is themselves as a musician um and so to me that lent itself very very well to goffman's basic concept of self-presentation which uh, suggests that we all, we all, everybody, um, present ourselves differently. We perform different identities for different audiences. And so the musical persona is essentially the identity as musician that the musician performs for those audiences. And that seemed to me to be the best way to approach the question because it does actually allow uh, for the possibility that that presentation on the part of the musician is a fictional character doesn't exclude that. Um, so it, it seemed to be a more flexible and, and more accurate way of fundamentally addressing the nature of what musicians are doing on stage than, for example, working from uh, uh, models derived from acting, uh, which would always point toward 
some version of a fictional character that just didn't seem to to make sense. However, I did retain the concept of character um, in the context of singers. Uh, this is, I mean, many people have have uh, have said this kind of thing, but um, of you know, when a singer sings a song, you know, they do perform a character, the character embodied in the lyrics of the song, um, and so so the concept of character is still in there, but it's it's kind of a a, a specific case since not all musicians are singers. Uh, you know, and so on, but but it still has its place uh, in the in the schema. Yeah, and I think at one point you talked about how it would be kind of interesting too to look at instrumental music in that way as well. Yeah, that's very that's in the introduction to the book. That's a very tricky proposition, um, and it's something I would have to spend a lot more time sort of thinking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, because the fundamental question uh, is whether or not a piece of instrumental music can be thought of as a narrative uh and if so uh can the you know i guess individual instrumental voices be considered to be characters in that narrative uh now in some cases of course you know there are certain kinds of program music or pieces like you know peter and the wolf or you know stuff like that where in fact musicians you know the, the, the lines that they're playing or the parts that they're playing are meant to evoke specific fictional characters. So this, so there are some cases obviously where, where this is in fact happening. Um, but it would, it would need, I would need to think about it on a more general level, you know, even pieces where it's not, you're not explicitly playing a part that's meant to impersonate a wolf or something like that. Uh, is there in some sense a character? Cause I, I mean, I, I think rudimentarily speaking, the structure of most at least conventional Western music is comparable to the structure of, of a narrative. Um, but that still doesn't quite answer the question of how we could position an idea of character in this. Because uh, if, e- if each instrumentalist is in some sense portraying a character through his or her contribution to the playing of the piece, you know, what is the nature of that character? I mean, it's a much more abstract proposition um, than saying it's uh, Hamlet or a wolf or you know, whatever. So that's, that's the tricky part. Uh, so I wanted to put it out there because I do think it's actually a really interesting question. Um, but I'm, I'm not equipped right now to uh, arrive at a solid conclusion about it. Oh, no, for sure. It was just that is definitely an interesting, interesting area that somebody needs to yeah. explore <laughs> at some point. They can write their own book about that. <laughs> um And then going on to part three, you know, this is more where we get into like specific case studies, you know, at this point, uh, context of performance. So can you talk about what's going on in chapters eight through 10 here? You've got all kinds of things from like the Beatles, you know, Lady Gaga, what's going on in this part? Well, right. I mean, these are indeed three fairly distinct uh, case studies. Now, the Beatles one is actually not about the Beatles. It's about the Beatles audience. Uh, you know, the famous Beatlemania audience that screamed so loud that you couldn't hear the band, you know, etc. And the, one of the reasons that that's there is because um, the other reason that the book is called In Concert, besides the fact that it deals with concerts, um, is the idea that the musician's persona is, in a sense a kind of co-creation between the musician and the audience. And the audience has a very deep investment in that persona. I mean, the best place to think about this is cases in which a musician decides to change persona. 
Um, and there are instances such as the Beatles, actually, where they do this very successfully. Um, I mean, the Beatles had about four different persona, I mean, group persona, uh, in the course of their career, at least four, maybe five or more. Um, and they manage those transitions, uh, you know, very, very skillfully. Uh, other people have not been as fortunate. Um, so, but that, those are the moments when you really, uh, start to see how deeply invested the fans are. I mean, for example, when I was doing some research for that chapter, um, I was trying to get more deeply into sort of fan discourse about the Beatles, uh, looking at a lot of memoirs and stuff from people who had grown up with Beatlemania or had participated in it. And, uh, you know, there were people who said, well, you know, I, I, I love the early Beatles, the later Beatles. No, you know, I just, it's no good anymore. You know, so, so that happens, right? I mean, people just say, this is, I don't like, I don't like the change. I don't like what they've become. Um, uh, but that also speaks to how deeply invested they are um, in that initial uh, formulation and that initial persona uh, that the performer put forward. Um, so I really wanted to do something that was that would focus. There's a lot of discussion of audience along the way, but that would really get more deeply in a particular way into sort of the question of the audience and how deep their investment in persona was and I had always wanted to try to come up with an explanation for that audience behavior, uh, which seems to fly in the face of everything that an audience is supposed to be. Um, other people have written about this, but I, I just wanted to try to come up with my own, uh, my own perspective on what might have been going on there. Um, and, and then the other two chapters you know, sort of do return more to talking about musicians and presentation of persona. This, the next chapter is, again, in the context of something that I've always just found absolutely fascinating and that no, there is not a lot of writing about, uh, which is this curious moment in the late 60s through about the mid-70s when uh, a deep nostalgia for the 1950s set in um, and there was you know, all kinds of rock and roll revivalism going on and so on. And this is something I experienced at first hand um, and I have you know, no real idea why it happened in a sense. Um, so I'm not trying to answer that question, but I was uh, I, I interested in, in how a number of different performers, uh, John Lennon, Frank Zappa, uh, and others sort of created persona or adjusted their persona or brought out aspects of their persona. I think that's what John Lennon was kind of doing by, you know, sort of emphasizing his own history in the 1950s. Um, and, and sort of emphasizing a kind of autobiographical dimension to the persona that he was presenting. Um, uh, so I was just trying to look at how, how these uh, selection of musicians sort of responded to that cultural moment um, and, and what, what that meant in terms of uh, the creation or adjustment or whatever of the persona that they were presenting. Um, and then the last chapter, uh, you know, is, is in a sense trying to bring things a little more up to date since the first chapter in that section is in the sixties and the second is in the seventies. Uh, and the third is, um, well, years ago I had written an essay about, uh, how performers can use persona as a means of sort of negotiating the flows of postmodern culture. Um, and, uh, I had two central examples in that earlier piece, and the, the musical one was Laurie Anderson. And at the time, which was sometime in the 1980s, that seemed to make a lot of sense. But when I sort of circled back to those ideas, 
I thought, nah, <laughs> um, and ended up talking about Lady Gaga, who is somebody I find absolutely fascinating and have written about more than once, um, and also Nicki Minaj. And this actually came, this, the inspiration of this was very specific, which was that um, I, went, I saw a presentation um, uh, that, that was, I don't remember even what it was about, but it incorporated both Lady Gaga and Nicki Minaj, and the person doing the presentation was showing pictures of them. And I was looking at these pictures, and what immediately struck me was the fact that at that time, um, all the pictures of Gaga looked different, and you couldn't really tell what she actually looks like. Whereas with Nicki Minaj, you know, she's playing all these different characters and persona and whatnot, but it's always the same face, right? Always. Um, and so that was the point of departure for this, and sort of thinking about, well, okay, what does that mean, and how? What does that say about how each one is sort of using this idea of persona? Um, in her relationship to our current kind of cultural configuration. Um, and it also brings the book full circle in a sense, because I also talk about sort of millennial and post-millennial people in the, in the introduction to the book, uh, particularly Billie Eilish and Little Nas X. So, so it kind of, you know, sort of a little bit of the current moment at the beginning and a little bit of the current moment at the end. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's it's interesting you bring up Little Nas X with everything that happened recently with his video and whatnot that just came out. Are you planning to work on that at all? <laughs> I don't know yet. I, I, I've only just started looking <laughs> at it, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but uh, it's, it's, it's possible. You never know what, uh, what's, uh, what's going to prove to be interesting next. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, that'd be cool. The other thing I was going to, you were talking a lot about um, sort of like your spark for some of these writings and talking about audience. Have there been any specific concerts you've gone to that have, you know, driven this interest in the artist persona that you're witnessing firsthand? Oh, sure. Yeah, a, a bunch. Um, I mean, I, I probably would even take too long to enumerate all of them. But yeah, I mean, a, a few that really st have stuck with me and that um, that speaks to sort of different aspects of this. Um, w one of them would be, this is not something I mentioned in the book, uh, but I, I am uh, a, f a fan of uh, the uh, 1970s version of King Crimson uh, in particular. And I, I did see a concert that they did in, I think, 1974. Um, and what I was really struck by was how untheatrical that performance was. I mean, Robert Fripp, the guitarist, was sitting on a high stool with his pedal sort of at his feet, basically never looked at the audience, you know, and, and the whole thing it was, it was, you know, very much, well, they were playing very complicated music, but you know, it was very much geared toward that. And, and interestingly, the, the opening band was the Dutch band Golden Earring, uh, whom I also love. I mean, Radar Love is one of the greatest songs ever. Um, 
but they were totally different. I mean, you know, they, they were all over the place. They were using pyro. You know, at a certain point, the drummer leapt off the drum riser onto the floor. You know, so it was very theatrical presentations. And then followed by this very cerebral, you know, presentation on the part of King Crimson. Um, so that kind of thing has caught my eye for a very long time. And just thinking about these different modes of self-presentation and, and sort of what they're about, what they're communicating, you know, the, the way that Fripp and, and his crew were communicating this idea of sort of high musical seriousness and concentration, um, as opposed to what Golden Earring were presenting themselves as being about. Um, and, you know, of course, the related genre differences between, well, it's hard to categorize Golden Earring very precisely because uh, it's a group that's been around for seemingly forever, uh, st- still exists as far as I know, um, and has passed through many, many different stylistic phases. Um, so at a certain point, although I don't think I agree with this, they were uh, sort of claimed to be affiliated with glam rock, which is another topic about which I have written a book. Um, and so anyway, the, regardless of that, rock, we'll just say rock for Golden Earring and then sort of prog rock for... Uh, uh, for uh, King Crimson and, and the kind of differences that that entails in terms of self-presentation. Um, and then the other thing I would throw into this, uh, well, two things kind of related to one another. Um, the Beach Boys, whom I saw in concert many, many, many times in the 1970s, uh, and, and this sort of transition that they were attempting from you know, what they had been in the mid-60s to trying somehow to find their way into the counterculture in the late 60s and 70s. Um, and so watching that process was, was, which was difficult for them and not entirely successful, uh, but seeing how they kind of changed their presentation uh, was, was a very interesting case. And the last thing I will mention is Shanana. Um, I am, to the best of my knowledge, only one of now two people, two academics who have written about Shanana. Uh, <laughs> And but their their particular uh, brand of theatricality was also something. I mean, I saw them many many times, and I and you know that very sort of extremely theatrical presentation. Um, uh, I thought also really caught my eye um, at the time, and I thought was very interesting. And and you know, to my way of thinking, anticipated a number of things that were that were well re- related to a number of things that were happening, such as the theatricality of glam rock. And anticipated uh, some things that were going to happen. So, so yes, definitely. I mean, my history as a concert goer uh, uh, has given me. I don't, I don't necessarily write about these events, uh, but the the things that I that they that these events made me think about, uh, and the things that I saw and, and sort of stuck with me, definitely have a lot to do with my interest uh, in the topic and my formulation of this idea of musical persona. Yeah. And on the flip side of that, have you, as a musician, you know, do you feel like you've ever, or, I mean, have you ever performed musical persona yourself? Not really. No. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I, I do perform as an actor, but uh, I'm not really a musician. I mean, I dabble a little bit, but uh, I can't say that uh, uh, I've really had the experience of, of being able to do that myself. Maybe someday, but uh, not up to this point. Yeah, I was just curious. Um, and another thing that I kind of thought about, too, that we've touched on in passing, but as you were talking about, we've been talking a lot about like rock and like different types yeah. of popular musics. But, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, you said a lot of this, these musical personae 
are tied to genre. So what do you see going on in things like classical music, you know, jazz and whatnot as well? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big jazz fan as well, and I actually could have answered your previous question with a list of jazz performances that I had seen that you know struck me uh, equally. And I and I think jazz is actually a very interesting context in which to talk about uh, persona. Um, so, and I this is some this is this is actually something I may move into writing about sometime in, in the near future uh, of, of of trying to more systematically kind of look at. Uh, jazz musicians, but um, uh, you know, often when I'm when I'm uh, teaching my students some of this material, one of the things we look at is, for example, the Bill Evans Trio um, in the early '60s, where you know Bill Evans has this way of playing the piano where he's completely hunched over it. Um, and uh, what's really interesting about the trio is that they never look at each other, and, and they never look at the audience. They're all, each one is completely absorbed in his own little world. Uh, which is actually fascinating. I mean, it, it speaks to their prowess as musicians that they were able to play without looking at each other at all. I mean, with no coordination, or at least no overt coordination. Obviously, there's something going on there. Um, but obviously, that's a very particular presentation of what a jazz musician is um, that has something to do with modern jazz as opposed to other moments in the history of the music, um, and something in particular to do with you know, the particular way that Bill Evans wanted to position uh, what he was doing. Um, not that he was the only one doing that by any means. I mean, if you look at the modern jazz quartet, for example, from around the same time, they were performing exactly the same way, um, you know, with very little regard to audience um, and so on. So, yeah, I think I think these kinds of questions you can really bring to pretty much any kind of music. I mean, in some ways, classical music is sort of an easy one because, uh, if you're talking about symphonic music, the persona of the vast majority of musicians is determined entirely uh, by the genre, right? Um, and there are there are limited exceptions to that, which include conductors. Uh, I mean, certainly conductors are all about persona. That's the purpose of a conductor, in a sense, uh, is to pre- present a, an image, a person, a persona to a, with which the audience can connect. Um, uh but, but the other thing, I mean, one of the things I'm very insistent on in all of this is that, you know, any kind of musical performance involves a persona. So one of the things I mentioned, but I didn't go into in any depth in the book is, for example, pit orchestras who are invisible to the audience, right? But there's a very specific way in which, you know, pit musicians present themselves, the point being that the audience are, is basically each other, Right. Uh, I mean, and, and their conductor. Um, and I was actually, um, I was really, I got uh, interested in some of this stuff and I was digging around. I found a document from the Tulsa uh, Symphony Orchestra, uh, which is basically a contractual document for their musicians. And it's very, very explicit. I mean, down to what kind of socks you can wear um, about, at least at the level of appearance, about what, um, you know what's what kind of persona you can present, and and they have different categories. You know the the regular season, the summer season, where they're playing outdoors, uh, and when they're working as pit musicians. Uh, there's a very specific list of things that you have to be wearing, um, and so that image of you know the, what a pit musician is um, is is just as uh, uh, determined in a sense, even though nobody can see the pit musicians, at least as far as the audience is concerned. Um, so that's a persona too, but it's it's a persona that 
you know, is functions in a, in a different way in the sense that the audience for it is only the other musicians. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I do, I do think that there's always a persona involved and it's always something that can be, uh, uh described and analyzed, uh, regardless of what genre or, uh, really what kind of circumstance of performance we're talking about. Yeah. I was thinking about going in the classical music vein, as you were talking about, you know, like is my, I'm a clarinetist. I've played a lot in the classical music scene, you know, like the traditional things like concert black, you know, attire that you have to wear and like the conductor has to have, like you were saying, like a certain level of persona, you know, in that way. So it seems like there's a, like you were, it's interesting to hear you talk about the Tulsa case because it is exactly that. I feel like it's very specific designated persona, you know, at least in, you know, some of the more rigid context that are put on. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, I think you can create a kind of spectrum from types of musical performance where the, where the persona, where the individual musician has little to no control over self-presentation. And so that would include symphony orchestras, uh, marching bands, um, uh, you know, a, a lot of jazz, big bands to a certain extent, although when, when taking a solo, it could be a little different. Um, and then that's sort of one end of the spectrum that the other end of the spectrum are genres like, you know, rock, et cetera, where things seem to be much more wide open. But my point about that would always be that, you know, even if a, in a particular genre, there seems to be quite a lot of freedom around self-presentation, it, there's still some limit somewhere. I mean, there, there's some some presentation that would ultimately be considered unacceptable um, in that context or inappropriate. Um, so even if the boundaries seem to be very broad, there are still boundaries always. There's still some limitation um, on the, the nature of self-presentation, the musical persona that's defined by that genre category. Oh, yeah. I mean, you definitely see that. It's in popular music, because I feel like especially getting complicated um, in different ways. But yeah, people have their expectations. People have their, for sure, like ideas of what constitutes, you know, the normative things. Um, yeah, and I, I believe, and I don't mean this in a negative way, although I believe that audiences are fundamentally conservative. And what I mean by that is that they liked what they saw last time and they want to see that again which is completely understandable. Um, and so therefore when what they do see, um, is significantly different from what they saw last time, they may not be happy. Uh, in some contexts they might be happy, but you know, just sort of depending on what the expectations are. But generally speaking, I think that, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the investment that audiences have in the performers and in the performers persona that, you know, having made that investment, they, they want to, um, you know, have that experience that they invested in. Yeah, no, for sure. That That's, I think that definitely came through, um, like in part three, for instance, like you were talking about before. Um, and let me ask you this as well. What else do you have in store project wise? What else are you working on these days? Well, the most concrete thing I'm working on, which actually circles back to a question you asked earlier is the third edition of my book, Liveness, Performance in a Mediatized Culture, which is all about liveness and the situation of, 
And I agreed to do a third edition of the book. The last edition was in 2008. So it seems like maybe a good moment to, <laughs> um, or seemed like maybe a good moment to take another look. But uh, I believe I signed the book contract before the pandemic um, and then found myself trying to think about live performance during a time when there is no live performance. Um, and so it's been pretty strange. I mean, I've done some work on it. I need to finish it, of course, and that will be my next big thing. Um, but it's been pretty strange trying to figure out just what this new version of this book should be under these, uh, under these circumstances and, you know, whether or not, I mean, I, I don't think fundamentally that the, the concept of what people think of as live has changed. Um, but, and I actually think people have asked me this question and I actually think that, you know, once the pandemic is truly over and we can have concerts and theater and so forth again, people are going to rush to it. <laughs> There's not going to be anybody saying, you know, eh, I kind of like watching things online. I'm staying home. Yeah. All right. There might be a few of those people, but I think most people are just going to say, wow, what's, you know, finally we can go to a concert. Um, so in that sense, I don't think, I don't think honestly that there's probably a lot of fundamental change that will occur um, as a result of this. But I am certainly interested in kind of, as I was saying before, in kind of, you know, what has been promulgated or suggested or attempted uh, as a means of providing some kind of quasi live or something experience um, in the means, using the means that uh, we have been able to use for the past year plus. Um, so that I'm struggling with it because it's a tough proposition to figure out just how to talk about this. Um, but that will be uh, the next uh, the next big thing. Um, I also did write, which is available, it's, it's online, it's in an online journal, so you can access it. A, um, the, the, the very next thing, in a sense, that I wrote about along the lines of the musical persona is an article about the Beatles as uh, uh, performers, and where I took a really, really close look at what they actually did on stage when they were performing. Um, so that, And I expect to do more of that kind of thing of sort of case studies of various kinds that apply this approach um, to specific cases and specific people in specific genres and um, yeah sort of see see what the results are i mean with the case of the beatles to me uh the result was actually kind of extraordinary because i when i watched these performances very carefully and analyzed them i realized that how important george harrison actually was because if you look at the beatles they were the way that they were staged was essentially very static with John Lennon and Paul McCartney at opposite sides of the stage, Ringo Starr in the back. And then George Harrison constantly in motion, you know, moving from one, moving from John to Paul to sing harmony with one or the other. I mean, one of the things that, you know, George was never provided with his own microphone. Now he could have been, I'm sure they could have afforded another microphone, but he wasn't precisely to create this, this effect. Of him, you know, so he'd be moving from one side of the stage to sing harmony, another side of the stage to sing harmony, center stage to play a guitar solo. So he's this incredibly dynamic thing that's constantly in motion. Um, yeah, where everyone else is standing still. Um, and, and that's a very different perception, I think, to my mind at least, even as someone who grew up with Beatlemania, uh, of George Harrison and, and what his role in that group was. Um, so to me, that's, that's kind of a find or uh, discoveries adds a little something new to our perception of the group. Um, uh, and I, you know, I never really crossed my mind until I 
uh, undertook uh, this little project. Um, so yeah, I, as I said, I expect to do more of that because I'm trying to, you know, extend the paradigm uh, once I uh, get through the task of figuring out the liveness situation. Yeah, that is a hefty topic to be dealing with right now. Um, and as you were talking about too, like the Beatles case study, you got me kind of thinking about, you know, kind of your approach to these different, you know, musical persona situations. What kind of um, aspects of these performances are you looking at? You were talking a lot about like movement yeah. in the case of the Beatles. So what are some different details that you're analyzing in these situations? Well, um, I, there's a, this is actually very explicit in, in the Beatles article because I actually wrote it for a theater journal. Um, and I wrote it, uh, you know, they asked me to write something and I had this idea about uh, writing about the Beatles and they were very enthusiastic about it. So I thought, okay, we'll just do that. But because it was for a theater journal, I framed it in relationship to, uh, performance analysis as practiced in theater studies, which is also something I talked a little bit about in the book. Um, and certainly, you know, the idea that it's legitimate to apply these, this, this approach to uh, musical performances. Uh, so, so that's, you know, kind of looking in a sense for the same kinds of things I would look for in a theatrical performance in terms of staging. Um, uh, but I, there are, I, don't, I don't have like a really long detailed list of specific things that I'm looking for. Um, I mean, you know, certainly in terms of, of persona, uh, you know, it has a lot to do with, with appearance, uh, how you, how the person is dressed, how the, you know, uh, relationship to the audience, um, the kinds of, uh, I don't know, facial expressions, gestures. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do, I, I don't, it's not necessarily all that systematic in a way. Um, but it's, it's, uh. I really do try to take a, as deep a dive into what is happening on stage um, as I possibly can. Um, and, and, uh, and also, I will say one thing. This is something I mentioned this in the Beatles article. And it's something I kind of realized. I mean, it's implicit in everything I do. But um, that I do look at performances as, you know, I don't take a process-oriented view. I look at them as finished products that are sort of in front of me. And I look at it from a spectatorial standpoint, essentially, but from a highly analytical spectatorial standpoint. Um, and I assume also, as I think you have to, that everything that happens on stage means something um, and happens for a reason. There's nothing there that's not, you know, that's extraneous or, or isn't part of what's being communicated or presented. Um, so those, you know, those are some of the things, but it's mostly just like looking, watching really carefully um, with, uh, kind of this idea of persona, uh, in mind. Uh, uh, and also, I mean, the, the other thing that I didn't get into much in the book, which does start to emerge when you're talking about the Beatles and, and other, not just the Beatles, but is the question of a group persona. Um, and then the relationship of individual members uh, of a group to that larger entity. Uh, so that's, that's another area I think that, uh, we can, kind of explore further uh, as time goes on. Actually, the, I've been teaching a course uh, at Tech this semester that has a lot of this kind of material in it. And uh, for whatever reason, we've ended up sort of gravitating continuously to talking about boy bands. 
And uh, so that idea of group persona and individual persona is very germane to the boy band. Um, uh, and, and so we've, uh, we've been talking a good deal about sort of how the individual persona is tailored to the overall perception of you know, what the boy band is supposed to represent. Of course, the Beatles were the first boy band. So. Oh, that's, that's fun. Oh my gosh, that is a lot to get into. Oh, that's really cool. Wish I could take that class. <laughs> but yeah, that's really cool. And I guess too, you know, one of the things I always think about along the same vein is like, you know, scholars work in relationship to their, you know, teaching. You know, how do you see your work playing out in the classroom? Like kind of like you were just talking about. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, over the years, I have taught a course that's really exactly, I mean, it just focuses, centers on this. And it's really about approaches to uh, analyzing musical performance. A, a bit more broadly, though. So, for example, one thing that we've been talking about in the course that I've never really gotten into in my scholarship is what uh, is stage talk, what musicians say in the course of their performances. And of course, you know, I, I, I might mention that here and there in the book, or you know, but I haven't really delved into that. There are other people who have, though, and there are, you know, uh, systems or approaches or frameworks for uh, for talking about that sort of thing. So uh, so in the course, it's, it's, it's a little bit more uh, broken down uh, to, uh, or broken down, and then also I try to provide the students with more explicit frameworks than just, you know, look at gesture, you know, just say, well, here's, here's a vocabulary for looking at gesture that, uh, that has been established. I don't particularly use that sort of thing myself when analyzing, but I think it's helpful, uh, when trying to sort of show people, um, how to do this. And, and the stage talk thing I think is really interesting. It's, it's a lot more complicated when you start to poke into it, uh, than you might think. And when you start to use, um, linguistic and you know, linguistic tools, conversation analysis, things like this that people have brought to bear on it. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's a pretty interesting topic unto itself. Uh, so the course that I've been teaching is, is you know, a bit broader in a sense. Persona is a big part of it, but I've also tried to surround that kind of with uh, other analytical approaches to looking at uh, musicians uh, in performance. And, you know, I've been teaching, well, I actually did not teach that course for a very long time. I just taught it, I'm teaching it again now. But over the years, I taught it quite regularly. And certainly doing that, while at the same time working on these sorts of ideas and publishing them, um, you know, kind of really went hand in hand. Um, and also helped me to see kind of how to communicate these ideas uh, to, to students and, and people who weren't necessarily familiar uh, with uh, kind of where it was coming from. Uh, so yeah, I, that's, that's definitely been a big part of it. Um, the other, the other course I teach on a regular basis is more, is more kind of historical, uh, in nature. So it's a little different, uh, and it doesn't necessarily get as much into the spe- analysis of specific performances and, uh, so forth. I can't help but mention persona and so on along the way, but it's, that's not really at, at the heart of it. Yeah. Gotcha. That's really cool, though, that you've been able to have those discussions in class and, you know, have that engagement. I think that's really neat to have that um, symbiotic relationship in that way. But Dr. Auslander, thank you so much for talking with us today. This was great. 
My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. And um, listeners, just as a reminder, um, this was an interview with Dr. Philip Auslander, author of In Concert, Performing Musical Persona, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2021. This is Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network. Thank you.